Domino, Domino, only spot a few blacks to hang out Domino, Domino, only spot a few blacks to hang out Hello everyone, I am your host Robert Stevens and this is the Black Work Experience Podcast. As you may know, I started this podcast because I was tired of being the only black male or one of the few black people at my organization. This can be crazy. I was constantly called upon to speak for the black experience or expected to do the emotional labor after blatantly racist things occurred. This is heavy and it left me feeling fragile, unappreciated and in need of a change. I began to ask my friends if they ever experienced being the only one or one of the few people of color at their job and the impact it had upon them. We discussed what it felt like to experience microaggressions and not have a friend or ally to lean on. Balancing the thin line between needing your coins and not being tokenized is never easy. The black work experience explores the intersection between race, class, and privilege in America and in the workforce. We tell the stories of those who paved and are currently paving the way. As people of color gain more institutional, political, and economic power, we often find ourselves surrounded by people who do not look like us, talk like us, or even think like us. This podcast discusses what it's like to walk in the shoes of those who feel alone. I fully recognize that not all black people think alike. The stories we share on this podcast may seem foreign to you and your experience, However, a lot of black people experience microaggressions daily, and we need an outlet. This is your outlet. I want you to know that you are not alone. This podcast is for all people, but we focus heavily on black people. I want you to know that you're not the only one experiencing microaggressions, otherness at work, and potential loneliness. If you identify with majority culture, listen to the podcast. Think about how you can help your black colleagues when your coworker talks over them or runs to the manager instead of having a difficult conversation or even calls them intimidating. Lean in, listen, and learn. That's what we're asking of you. Hello everyone and welcome back. I am so excited to have Ruth Githumbi with us today. Now Ruth is a proud first-generation Kenyan American with strong roots to her Kenyan heritage. She graduated with a BA in political science from the University of St. Thomas and with her master's in nonprofit management from the University of Houston downtown. Now, Ruth has been in a nonprofit sector for over a decade and is currently a senior director of development. She lives in Houston, Texas with her family. And just a, just a quick, 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 you know, I want to be very, very open. Ruth is the homie. I've known Ruth. We worked together in the past and I'm excited about having Ruth on the podcast because I know that Ruth has a world of experience um, working in fundraising. She has amassed just a lot of experiences that I think are very, very relevant to what we're about to talk about today and what we talk about on our podcast. So Ruth, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Black Work Experience podcast. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate it. I'm really excited to be here. I don't want to do a shameless plug, but I used to have my own podcast and I haven't done it in more than a year. So it feels good to be on a podcast and not have the responsibility of doing it myself. 
Hello. Hey, listen, sometimes this responsibility is burdensome, but heavy is the head that wears the crown. Speaking of crowns, Ruth, I'm going to give you your flowers. I've known you for a little bit and you are amazing. You are someone who speaks truth to power, someone who allows their words to, they can cut like a knife through butter, but always in in such a righteous and amazing way. (laughs) So I want to get us started. Ruth, tell us about yourself. Who is Ruth Githumbi? That is a great question. I think that's a question that I'm constantly answering. I have been answering it my entire life. Uh, I could say that I was born in Mobile, Alabama. My parents, as you said in my intro, were from Kenya. They moved here in the 80s. And I think being a first-generation Kenyan-American shaped me deeply. Uh, My parents are also very conservative Christians, which also, I think, shaped my upbringing immensely. It's funny, I was listening to your last episode and you were talking about things that connect Black people regardless of location and you sang a line from a Temptation song and I had no idea what the song was. And I think that is a great illustration of my upbringing. Like, you know, my parents did not listen to what they called secular music and, you know, they were very strict on what we watched. So, you know... In terms of pop culture, I had to learn all that stuff when I moved out and in my friendships, especially black culture. I had to learn that with my friendships and, you know, people that I dated and, you know, stuff like that. But there's so much that I didn't have, you know, growing up that really, I think, defined who I was in terms of straddling this tension of being kind of Kenyan and being kind of American. Because when you're born here, you're not fully Kenyan either, but there's still so much of you that is shaped by that heritage. You know, we've had conversations in the past about growing up as a first generation with your people coming from, um, descending from Africa. And I know you said that shaped you deeply. I want to put a pin in that because I want to come, I want to come back to that as we explore some of these tenets of like, workplace, being black in the workplace, as well as like navigating racism. Um, So you talk a little bit about who you are, where you're from, your roots. I want us you, I want you to take us on a journey through your professional career. Like what do you do and how did you get there? Yeah. So I, my entire life, I think that I was going to be an attorney. I graduated with a poli sci degree and I started working at law firms and realized quickly that it was, for me, not a good fit because I didn't feel like I was fulfilled and that my job had a purpose, which is really important to me. My dad was a fundraiser. Well, he was a missionary, but he spent a lot of time raising money. And we as a family spent a lot of time helping him further his mission. And so I think it was instilled in me, even though I didn't realize it, that I need to have some kind of purpose with my work. So eventually I decided not to go to law school and I got a job at a small nonprofit doing HIV anti-stigma education. And it was myself and the founder And these were people who 
I mean, we could not have been more different in terms of lifestyle, appearance, everything. So that was my first kind of foray into working in the nonprofit sector and everything that that entailed. And very quickly, I realized that my affinity was kind of fundraising or relationship building, things of that realm. And working in a small shop is great because you get a little bit of everything. So I did everything from you know, planning the board meetings to doing crowd fundraising to volunteer training to just the books. Like I was in QuickBooks. And you were in QuickBooks, so Ruth? You really get to figure out what you like. Oh, man. Yeah, man. I walked a dog. Okay. The founder of the organization, the office was in his home and he had a black lab. And I used to walk that dog regularly. Like I've done it all. That's the one thing about being in a small shop and, um, you know, this idea of rolling up your sleeves. I think in the nonprofit sector, they can take it a little too far. But when you're trying to prove yourself, and especially when you're Black, you're going to do what, you know, is on the table to do. So, I, you know, I, I got a lot of experience doing different things. But again, I just felt like relationship building, fundraising, that was something that I had an affinity for. And so I just started this career trajectory of continuously elevating my role. I think one thing about me is I'm, I wouldn't consider myself ambitious, but I also don't like being stagnant. So I would just continue to do professional development and I was hungry. So I would always ask for different roles and to try new things. And that afforded me the ability to get higher and higher roles in different organizations until eventually I am now, which is a senior director of development, which development is a term that is used often interchangeably for fundraising. Yeah. Ruth, I don't think you knew this, but when I first moved to D.C., I also worked for a nonprofit doing HIV AIDS work and anti-stigma work. It was, you know, I did not know this. Yeah. 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 It was interesting. I'm from a super duper, super duper small, small town in North Carolina. And, um, you know, when you're from a small town, there's a lot of stigma associated with HIV and, and AIDS. And a lot of times when people in my community growing up, um, when they were diagnosed with HIV, people say, oh, you know, they they went up the road. Right. And I think really what they were doing were, were seeking community. They went to places um, because it's just, I mean, small towns, sometimes people can be small minded and, and not understand. And there is still a lot of stigma. And so I was able to work at this organization. It was called Metro Teen AIDS in D.C. And I was really able to do a lot of unlearning of, of, of things that I that I had thought were right growing up or seen. And, you know, honestly, just. uh took into my psyche and, and, and sort of and dealt with as a kid. Uh, so that's super. I had no idea we had that. We had that connection. You said something and I want to come back to it because you talked about uh, the impact your father being a missionary had on your life. What was it like growing up in a very conservative uh, Christian household as a first generation um, American, Kenyan American? It was interesting. I think that I... Now, looking back in hindsight, I can appreciate my upbringing a lot more than I did at the time. At the time, I think I felt a constant 
uh, fear of missing out. And I always felt like my friends were doing things that I wasn't allowed to do. And I didn't get the opportunity to just kind of live a young person's life the way I felt other people were. But now, again, looking back, I think I appreciate a lot of the culture that I had. I had a lot of strong ties to my Kenyan community in Houston and, you know, going back to Kenya regularly, being able to see my extended family there, knowing where I'm from. Again, something that I heard on your last episode was uh, the guest talking about heritage and this ability to know where you're from. And he was talking to some people about their family crest. And that's a distinctly European thing. But I would say that something that I've learned I'm really blessed to have is this connection with my culture. I know where I'm from. I can trace my roots to the exact village where my you know, ancestors, ancestors, ancestors lived. And that's a real blessing. And I took that for granted. But, you know, the things that I think I thought I was missing out on are so insignificant at this point. You know, one of the things that used to make me so upset is my parents never wanted us to go out to eat. They always said we have food at home, you know, which later again, I'm realizing is a distinctly black across the board. <laughs> we got food. Do you have McDonald's money? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So, but at the time, I just felt like all my friends always had pizza on the weekdays, and I was so jealous, you know. Or I think music was a big part of our lives, too. And, you know, we had to sneak in secular music to be able to listen to it. My dad bought me a CD player when I was 11, and he said, The only way you can play it is if you listen to Christian music. And so that thing literally collected dust for like seven months. And my mom finally convinced him to let me listen to what I wanted to listen to on it. So it was this constant struggle of wanting to feel like I had the American lifestyle that I was seeing on TV or that I thought my friends had, but my parents really wanting me to have Kenyan values. And I think the balance is what my life's work has been about to take the good from what I have learned being an American and the good that I've learned from being a Kenyan and pass that on to my kids. That's deep. Ruth, this is a quick aside. Tell me, do you remember the first secular CD you purchased and played? Absolutely. Bob Marley legend. Oh, Bob Marley legend. Let's go. Let's go, Bob Marley. That's what I'm talking about. So I want to ask you this because I'm hearing these themes, right? Parent was a missionary, really helped you get into um, focusing on values, helped you crystallize this notion that the work you did was important and it it wanted to be connected to a higher mission. You know, I was doing a little bit of research. Um, because I see, you know, I've worked in nonprofits, I've worked um, in in business, I've worked in the government. And one thing that I see is a lot of developers and fundraisers, they're white. And so I said to myself, what does this look like? And after doing a little bit of research, according to the 2018 demographic report of the Association of Fundraising Professionals, of the more than 31,000 members, less than 10% are professionals of color. Now, this includes all colors, right? So it's those who identify as African-American, Hispanic, Native American, um, Alaskan Native, multi-ethnic, 
and AAPI. And I was wondering, like, in your journey, have you seen like this dearth of, of, of blackness in the field? And how has your racial identity impacted your professional career? I absolutely agree with those statistics. I think optically and visually, it's even more stark, the racial disparity in fundraising. I can remember going to Association of Fundraising Professionals events and seeing out of, you know, hundreds of people, maybe four or five black people. And I think if I were to have been asked a question of how it impacted my career five years ago, I would have said maybe not so much. I think I have been learning how much race has impacted my career over the past five years. And I would say that it has tremendously impacted my career. I know that it has made it more difficult for me to land jobs. And I know that it's made it more difficult to be seen as a fundraising professional, frankly. And I think part of it is the culture of philanthropy in general, the way philanthropy began, the history that it has in this country. Philanthropy really comes from racial disparity. I mean, the idea of philanthropy is based in capitalism and these guys like Carnegie and Vanguard having an obscene amount of wealth and donating it to some charitable causes as kind of almost a penance for what they were doing on the business side. And so for, you know, decades and decades, philanthropy really has been people who have so much almost from guilt giving to people who have less. And so the origin of the work kind of presupposes, um, class disparity, socioeconomic disparity. And, you know, in America, that also means racial disparity. So it makes sense that there are fewer people of color in the work. But when I was getting into it, it's so insidious, the racism in fundraising. And I think largely in the nonprofit sector that I really thought that it was me, my problem. There was something going on with me. And, you know, if that's imposter syndrome or whatever, but I think that I felt that I just needed to work harder. And that was the messaging I was being given too, is, you know, work hard and you can succeed in this work. But it there wasn't an even playing field when it came to being a woman of color in the fundraising sector. So regardless of how much you worked, I think Definitely my racial identity was a barrier to a lot of opportunities. Mm, Ruth, this is this is this is something that is so personal for me because I always felt the same thing. Work hard and you can be successful. I think actually it's drilled into us, right? Like, oh, you know, if you work hard, you can be successful. And I get into it with teachers you know everyone knows if you don't know listeners I'm a former educator um and I was having this conversation in the barbershop because I said 
we should stop telling kids that they can grow up and be anything they want to be. Right. I think what we should really do is make sure we tell kids that like to set realistic goals. Right. And that doesn't mean don't dream. Right. But I think that there's more danger in in in, in telling a kid that they can grow up and, and be something that like structurally and just like realistically they could not be. Right. And so I had a kid whose name will remain um, nameless. Uh, everyone who, who knows me personally knows that, you know, I love, I love this little boy. I looked after him as if he was my son. I taught him in seventh grade. Uh, unfortunately, he was reading on the second grade level. We had failed them so many times before he, he, he got to me, but I put him out of class when they was talking to him. He was like, Oh, Mr. Stevens. I was like, what's up? He's like, man, I, I want to be a lawyer. I want to go to Yale law school. And I knew right there, I was pained. I was hurt deeply because I knew even if he read on the seventh grade level, right, the likelihood of him being accepted into Yale Law School, um, the likelihood of, of, of we could grow grit, right? Grit is growable, right? Intelligence is malleable. We can grow our intelligence, I think that there are structural barriers in place, right, um, that that really would have curtailed his ability had everything went right for him to achieve that goal, right? And so I always think about that. Um, I always think about this, like, we have to work so hard. You know, we, we work together at a place where working hard was infused in the culture. Um, you know, and, and I'm not a someone who doesn't like to work hard, but I just feel like uh, there are a lot of people who get where they're going without having to work as hard as we do as, as black people. And that was something that's just, that's just, that, that just always resonates with me. And so you said that you you said that you felt like your, your opportunities were stymied over these last five years. You were able to look retrospectively and, and see that your your opportunities you didn't have as many. And that makes me think about the story I found online uh, about a, a fundraiser who was continuously passed over for promotion to a frontline development officer. And apparently, the organization was really afraid of putting her you know, at the forefront, being the one in charge of making this ask, right, uh, of these big asks. And when she inquired about it, she was told that major donors would not want to engage with a black person. So there was no reason to promote her if she couldn't be successful in her job. And while working in Texas, you know, I experienced this with a colleague. Um, We had someone come who um, took over development and she she identifies as as a black woman. And I was so afraid for her. I was really so afraid. We had a, um, a, a white man in the role. This, this is in Dallas, Texas. And we brought in a black woman. And I was really afraid that she would not be successful. Um, suffice to say, I'm happy to report that she's been uberly successful, um, amazingly successful, um, been able to grow and, 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 and you know increase fundraising by leaps and bounds. But it's sad that that was my experience, that I had a very palpable fear Right, that she would not be successful only because she was black. Have you ever experienced that, Ruth? I've never experienced somebody saying that to me explicitly, but I think that it has been a consideration that was not shared. I think that 
you know, the hard part about being a fundraiser as a black woman, well, there's many, but one of them is that you're competing with people who are from that world, so to speak. And it's, it almost becomes a battle of familiarity. You know, who is a donor more likely to trust their major funds with? Someone who they feel like is kind of in the club, so to speak, someone that they would normally see at the country club or someone who they probably would have never spoken to outside of this professional setting in their lives. And, you know, one thing that's interesting is fundraising is probably the most lucrative career path in the nonprofit sector. But in my experience, a lot of fundraisers that I've met don't need the money. They come from money and they get into the work because of that. They're connected to board members. So when positions come up, you know, a, a good word is shared and suddenly someone is in the role. You know, a joke I always made is that if you look at fundraisers, especially in the South in Texas, where I live, a lot of them have, you know, two surnames because those family names carry a lot of weight and they want both names to be listed. And, you know, I think, again, when um, a fundraising executive is making a decision, they're thinking, okay, is this person who maybe if they get in trouble with their fundraising, they can call on their mom, in-law, friend to donate $20,000? Is that a better to cover the shortfall? Is that a better investment than this person who really has to rely on their skill set and their relationship building prowess to build their portfolio and grow their portfolio? And a lot of times they'll go with what they think is the easier investment. But as you mentioned with uh, the calling that you had in Dallas, and I would say my own experience is that we can be very successful. No one in my life can drop even $2,000 for a major gift to help my shortfall. But I've been successful because I, you know, in addition to having grit, remained very, very teachable and have refined my fundraising style. And it's been very successful for me. But I think I have definitely been competing with people who, like you said, do not have to work even a fraction as hard as I do. Ruth, I want to jump right back because I think we may have put the cart in front of the horse uh, or the horse in front of. Well, how does that saying go? At any rate, we jump ahead. I want to make sure people understand what a fundraiser, what a development person does. Right. Can you like just give them maybe a 30 second overview of like what you do, how you raise money and like making the ask? Because some people this is a uh, you, you said something that triggered this thought that development individuals, fundraisers are probably the most well-paid in the nonprofit sector, uh, which is one of the reasons why th there's just not a lot of us in that role. But we talked about a little bit about the structural barriers, but people just may not know. And one additional thing that we try to do at the Black Work Experience podcast is introduce people to careers and sectors that they may not have thought about. So can you give us a little 30 second overview of what exactly a development person, a fundraiser does and, 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 and like the ins and outs of it? I love that. Thank you so much for asking, because I 
really do hope that more people of color, especially black people, get into fundraising. And it, for me, was not something that I had ever heard of. I knew that nonprofits existed, but I didn't know that fundraising was a career path. So I'll say that uh, fundraising is the means by which nonprofit organizations primarily raise their revenue. Some nonprofits have earned revenue, like a Goodwill, for example. They have stores, so they make money in that way. But even those nonprofits with earned revenue still have fundraisers who create an annual fundraising plan using multiple streams of revenue, which can be anything from digital fundraising, you know, your crowd or peer-to-peer fundraising, to social media fundraising, which is also in the digital space, to um, annual appeals, special events, and then kind of the um, crown jewel, so to speak, of fundraising, which is major gift fundraising. And that is where I think the most lucrative careers are held, where you are responsible for cultivating relationships with major donors. That Uh, label major donors, it varies from shop to shop in terms of how much money that means. But typically a major gift is anywhere from $2,500 and above. So as a major donor fundraiser, you're responsible for creating relationships and growing relationships with donors who will be giving that amount and more. And the goal really is to create relationships that will lead to what we call moves management, which is higher and higher donations. So, you know, I think something that I thought before I got into fundraising and I think is a common misconception is that fundraising is very salesy, that it's transactional, that it's dishonest. You know, a lot of nonprofits like the Red Cross or other organizations kind of have not the best reputation in terms of fiscal transparency and, you know, fundraisers looking like they're shaking down people. And I very much thought that before I got into fundraising. And so it was the last career that I ever thought I would have. But when I started doing the work of being in a nonprofit, I realized that it really is based on relationships. That is the bread and butter of this work. And if you build relationships, the contributions will come from that. And I am a relationship person personally and professionally. And so it just made sense for me to pursue that line of work and build my fundraising style around what is comfortable for me. There are still plenty of transactional fundraisers in the space And, you know, what works for them works for them. But for me, in order to have sustainability and success and growth, I focus on building authentic relationships with my donors. And that has proven to be successful for me. So really being a fundraiser is just raising the revenue that a nonprofit needs to do the work that it does. And that is what fulfills me personally about the work, even though I'm not in the program space, which personally I have a passion for. I know that the programs cannot get done without revenue. And so every time I solicit a gift or I, you know, get a grant, 
it makes me feel good because I know that's my way of contributing to the work and the mission of the organization. That is that is amazing. I appreciate you sharing that because I don't think everyone knows, you know, what what a fundraiser does. Um, number one, how lucrative it can be. But you said you you talked about the relationships, right? And and knowing that really what we do. I've done a little bit of fundraising, right? Um, I'm actually in the midst of fundraising right now. Every for the past nine years, we've uh, my friends, uh, I've reached out and, and leaned upon them, and we've been able to feed people uh, across. You know, we're in ten cities now for Thanksgiving. We believe that every we really deal with uh, kids who are lower income, um, kids who are staying with their grandparents on fixed income. And with inflation being as high as it is, uh, and food prices going up, we want to make sure that as many kids have a hot meal in front of them for Thanksgiving as possible. So, um, you know, we raise about four to five thousand dollars every year, and we feed kids all over the country. This year, we're actually feeding in Houston, Texas, uh, Ruth, which is crazy. Um, it'll be our first year in Houston, but we're feeding kids in Houston. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Don't worry about it. I'm going to hit you offline for a donation. Um, but at any rate, it's a relationship. But, um, you know, we just talked about these structural barriers. We talked about what, what a fundraiser does. You know, and I wanted to ask you from your opinion, like, what are some of the issues that impact fundraisers of color the most, right? When I was doing some research and thinking about it, I was thinking about racist work environments, um, efforts not being made to create a welcoming and supportive environment for staff of color. And we have this conversation, we've had this conversation personally about, you know, shared workspace. I fervently believe that you can hire black people. And I said this across numerous episodes. You can hire black people and, and organizations should, but if they do not create a welcoming environment, a supportive environment, like you can't expect them to stay. And I think with, the, with, with George Floyd's death and what we're seeing happen all over the country with people, you know, we call it a racial, rec- a racial reckoning, racial uh, awakening. Um, we've seen a lot of companies try to do the right thing, but what do you think are some of the factors that, that really impact just like this lack of fundraisers of color at the most and, and what contributes to it? I think a lot of things contribute to it. I would say one of which is pervasive just in professionalism in general, this idea of what a professional looks like. And for fundraising, it's very much like sales, like real estate or, you know. And so there's a certain look that nonprofits are seeking for their fundraisers. And it's a very unspoken thing. But if you just right now do a Google search and look at top nonprofits in your city and you look at the fundraisers, you'll notice a trend. And that implicit bias is what I think makes the decisions really hard when And not saying that they should be hard decisions, but I think they impact the success of black fundraisers when they're going up against someone who looks like the uh, idea of what a fundraiser should be to the hiring manager. And, you know, for myself, like I am a plus sized, dark skinned black woman. So I am 
not just, you know, dealing with the idea of not being white or not. I am also not a light skinned black woman. I also for the past, I don't know, four years have been wearing my hair naturally, which was a really tough decision for me professionally. But I decided it was something that meant a lot to me and I needed to do it. And so I think just even the look, you know, many times I have been the finalist, many, many times I've been a finalist for a job. And then for some reason didn't get the job. And when I go back to look at the website to see who did get the job, they do not look like me. So I think there's a, um, a difficulty that comes with not having the standard look of a fundraiser, which is a lot of times thin, blonde, um, you know, just generally good looking. And so I, I think for a long time, that was not something that I was cognizant of. But now after this racial reckoning, there's been a lot more open conversation. And I'm realizing that it has been something, it has been a barrier, maybe an unspoken barrier that I've dealt with in my career. And obviously, as you've spoken to um, just the work environment in general, I would say the good thing about fundraising and part of why I chose it is that it's very flexible. So even before remote work, I was hardly in the office because before the pandemic, fundraising was largely built on meetings with donors and you wouldn't have those at the office. So I loved being a fundraiser because I would be maybe in the office a couple times a week generally, but for the most part, you're at a breakfast or having coffee or in a conference or doing, you know, all kinds of things that made it so that building relationships and building relationships doesn't happen at a desk in an office. So, um, I, I did like that aspect before remote work, but it was hard even when I was in the office, particularly the summer of 2020 and where I worked, uh, it was difficult. So I think that makes it difficult for Black fundraisers and just Black professionals in general. I also think the um, a lack of support from the executives in an organization you know, one of the things that's important is to know that your boss has your back as a fundraiser and will uh, stick to the values of the organization if a donor disrespects you or does something that warrants them maybe not being a donor anymore and having the integrity to say that and to stick up for fundraisers is important. You know, I've had donors who said, I don't want to deal with Ruth to my boss. And I've had bosses that said, okay, that's not a problem. You know, I'll work with you. And I've had bosses that said, sorry, that's who you're going to be working with. And if you have a problem with it, you know, you need to figure out if this is a place you need to be contributing to. And just them having that ethical um, courage to say that to a donor, because, you know, the one thing you don't want to do as a fundraiser is say no to money. But sometimes you have to when it means living up to the values of the organization or protecting your staff. 
So I think a lot of organizations don't protect and advocate for their black fundraisers enough, particularly when it comes to interactions with donors. And if you're getting microaggressed by donors constantly, that's not a sustainable environment. You will leave that organization or the work in general. And I think that is really tough. And I think lastly, I'll say not encouraging wellness. I think there is a lot of burnout in the nonprofit space in general, but particularly in fundraising, because it's a big burden to feel like people's paychecks are on your shoulders. And it's very busy. It's, It's customer service times a hundred or how many people on your portfolio and you know people with privilege are demanding and they don't care about monday through friday i have i've had donors call me sundays evenings they don't care they call you whenever and there's just a lot of weight that comes with being a fundraiser and if the organization is just constantly preaching go 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 and having people wear their exhaustion like a badge of honor It's not sustainable. And especially when you're a black fundraiser, because you're dealing with all the other things we just talked about, all the other unpaid emotional labor in addition to your actual job. And if you don't have someone encouraging you saying, you need to take some time off, you need to have a sabbatical, you need to turn off your computer or your phone. It's just not something that you can survive. So I think there's a lot of things that make it tough, but I would say those are the main ones that I personally have experienced and seen in my work. You know, Ruth, I never thought, I never thought about it that way, but you just mentioned when you're a fundraiser, you have people's jobs in your hand, right? It's really like being an entrepreneur, right? You have to make sure the business is making enough money to employ people because if, you all don't hit your goals. That means that you do not have enough revenue. If you don't have enough revenue, you have to make cuts. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been there, right? Like, have you ever, you know, worked at an organization, whether it was you and I don't want, I I don't want to spill, you know, you spill any, any, any tea as some people call it, but have you ever seen that? I know you've, you've definitely seen it before, right? Where, someone did not hit their goal, fundraising goal, and an organization had to lay people off? Uh, let's see. Yes, I have seen it. I, I'll say this. There's a long process that comes into budgeting that you know I won't get into. But as a fundraiser, it's really important to make sure that there's a difference and a cushion between your fundraising goal and the revenue you need to meet your budget. And being conservative about the revenue you need to reach your budget. And then the sky is the limit when it comes to your fundraising goal. But not using that number as the number that you give to finance as, you know, this is what you have to spend. Because that is what makes things get really dicey. So for me, when I'm working with the finance team and the programs directors to come up with a budget... I'll tell them, my goal is I want to raise revenue across the board by 10%. That's my goal. I would love to do that. Given market conditions and what's happening, what I can promise you 
is raising revenue by 2%. And that is the revenue that you need to use to make your decisions. And that process is a give and take. You know, there's usually some negotiation involved, but I'm very conservative with the number. I never want to feel like I'm betting with people's lives and saying, oh yeah, I, I feel real confident. I have a hunch that we'll raise this and this. And then decisions are made and it turns out that that didn't happen and people are getting laid off. Or similarly, the programming. Because again, when you're talking about a nonprofit, you're not talking about Pepsi. It's not that less bottles of Pepsi are going to get made. It's that, like you said, less people are going to have Thanksgiving dinner. You know, less people are going to have shoes. Less people are going to have hot showers. Less people are going to have care for their arthritis. I mean, when you're in the nonprofit sector, you're doing work that really impacts people's lives. So the stakes are really high. And I try to be very careful and conservative, thoughtful, strategic when coming up with the numbers, because I want to make sure that we do what we can to ensure stability in the programming and also in the staffing. Mm. That makes sense. You talked a little bit about like microaggressions is one that like all of the things that you have to deal with on top of the stress of, of raising funds. And we talk about microaggressions a lot right here on this on this podcast. And some people will say, oh, you know, microaggressions are not real, uh, but they are. They are. They're very real and they can hurt. And and I wanted to know if you could share one of your most memorable slash painful microaggressions that you experienced. I'm sad to say that's hard to pick out. There have been so many, just a litany of microaggressions. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, working in Texas, just in the nonprofit space in general is, wow. I mean, I've had so many. I would say that um, a lot of them, the ones that have been the most hurtful had to do with questioning my expertise or my ability in a very subtle, denigrating way. And I experienced those, you know, from colleagues, you know, lateral coworkers to supervisors to just, I mean, so many people, I think, have really questioned my abilities. And it almost becomes the norm so that you have imposter syndrome. And I struggle with that term a lot because it makes it seem like the person who is surviving that is the problem, you know, that they have a syndrome. But really the syndrome is white supremacy and it's the society that has the problem, not me. So I'm not suffering from imposter syndrome. I am suffering from a system who is intimidated by my expertise and biased against my skin color and thus treats me as if I do not deserve to be in the room. And that's not a me problem. That's a them problem. And I really have to unlearn and unlearn, unlearn a lot of things and, and learn that because when you have this experience of so many microaggressions, particularly about your abilities, you begin to think that there's something wrong with you. And that's absolutely not the case. It's that 
you're just working in an environment that is very biased against people who look like you. Jesus, I needed to hear that. I needed to hear that. I, I, I worked at a place where microaggressions were so rampant that I had to go to therapy. I really had, yeah, I had to go to therapy because I was like, why am I not doing this well? I've achieved and excelled at everything I've done. Why is this so hard for me? Why is this so hard for me? And, I, and I've worked with white people my entire life. I've almost always been um, the only or one of the few black people. Right? I think it's the nature of working in politics. I think it's the nature of being um, you know, a black man in politics, uh, lobbying, and just you know, you're doing, even doing education policy, like um, working with, with uh, disabilities and individuals with disability. You know, I, I've almost always been the, the, the sole black man. And I've tried initially, as soon as I get in the door, I see it and I'm like, no, this isn't going to work, right? And so I'm able to pull pull others in, right? Hire black men, hire black women, um, hire people of color to diversify the place and bring other ideas and perspectives into into the arena. But, you know, I worked at this organization here in North Carolina and it was so tough, so tough. I had to go to therapy. I'll never forget Rue. Um, I left work like, and I, I went and picked my kids up from daycare. Um, so the twins, they're probably like what? Three? No more than no more than four. And I just sat outside in the car and I cried. And my kids, uh, the girl, Simone. Simone, you know, she's three. She could always talk well, but she came in and wiped my my tears. And Skylar came up and said, what's wrong, daddy? And and I just said, you know, it's a little bit hard now. Can you all pray for me? And Simone closed her eyes. Skylar closed her eyes. They put their hands on me. And they said, God bless daddy. And that was it. Amen. And I never forget saying to myself, I have to leave this place because it is not allowing me to be a good father, a good husband. And I, I don't like the person that I am. And that's what white that's what white supremacy will do to you. It will have you questioning your worth. It will have you questioning your ability um, to, to, to do a job that you know you can do, that you know you're prepared for. Exactly. They know you can do. Which is why they're trying to take you down. Yeah, absolutely correct. I, you know, I never shared that story with anyone, Ruth, because uh, it's so deep and personal. Uh, but that's the burden, right? That's the whole reason for this podcast, because that's the burden that we that we that we that we have as Black people in these places, and there are very few people who look like us. And I, I want to ask you: Have you ever been the only person of color or a woman of color in the office? And like, how did you handle that? Oh, absolutely. But first of all, I have to speak on that story. It is incredibly beautiful. And I would say that parenthood has absolutely changed how I view my work. And also, it has changed my tolerance for white supremacy in the workplace. I went through a very similar experience recently where I had to leave an organization where I was dealing with a lot of white supremacy and just a general toxic work environment. 
because of my daughter. I felt like I wasn't being the mother that I wanted to be. And I'm a first time mom and she's a baby. But I just remember times when I'm sitting up with her late night and I'm thinking about work and these toxic things that are happening to me at work. And I look over at my baby and she's just staring at me and she has no idea about what's going on, but she knows that mom's not present, you know, emotionally or I'm there physically, but I'm not present. And I just did not like that. I didn't want to set a precedent for her, even though she's so young that, you know, and I understand work and being a working mother is definitely something that you have to navigate and manage. But that, again, emotional unpaid labor of having to work through microaggression and toxic work environment and white supremacy culture is just too much. And it was something that I think I had a lot more tolerance for before I had my daughter. And now it's just something that I cannot tolerate. I I have to be a whole person for her. So I completely commiserate with that story and it's beautiful. And that's why I just... Kids are so great, you know, because no matter what you have going on at work, they're there and they're amazing and resilient. So I just I had to speak on that story. Love that. And yes, I have very often been the only black person at work, but also in my life in general. My parents were Kenyan and, you know, you and I have talked about this, this idea of uh, what Ibram Kendi calls ethnic racism between, you know, uh, diasporic Africans and Black Americans. And so my parents didn't really have a lot of friends. Their friends were either Kenyan or white. And they moved, my dad especially moved in a lot of white spaces, white churches and just white spaces. And my neighborhood was in the middle. I think we kind of like caused the white flight of my neighborhood, but generally the neighborhood was pretty white initially. And I was in gifted and talented classes and AP classes, and I was surrounded by a lot of white kids there, or I was often the only black person. I went to a predominantly white institution, University of St. Thomas, So it's not something that I was unfamiliar with, this feeling of being the only Black person. I think what was different about the experience in the workplace than where I had been in my life before that is the the competitive nature of work and this idea that like when I felt that my work and working hard and proving myself would always be enough. But in the workplace, it's not. People will come up with reasons to tear you down or to um, dismiss your work or discredit you. And that was difficult not having an ally. There's a lot of allyship and a lot of alliances that are formed in the workplace because of the competitive nature of work that you are just excluded from when you're the only black person. So being able, you don't have people that you could talk to, strategize with. And even if you did, there was always something less authentic about the relationship. 
And so generally I didn't make a lot of work friends and I felt very alone at work because of that. And that, you know, most of the conversations that I had with people about work happened with my black friends who did not work with me. And I would ask their advice, you know, what should I do? But in terms of at work, it was just a very lonely experience. That sounds so sad, right? And I think that that's why, you know, uh, I'm my experiences mirror mirror your experiences. Um, not being able, not feeling comfortable, not having friends at work, so having to have conversations. Right, as soon as you leave work, call your friend and say, "Hey, you will never guess what happened." Oh my lord! Oh, this is what X Y Z did today. You know. And they would say, hey, didn't this person do that, you know, not too long ago? And I'd be like, yeah, they did this. Oh, so they're doubling down. Yeah. And so, like, we end up having friends and family members who know everything about our job because we don't have anyone to talk to at work. And it creates such a lonely existence. And I think that, you know, I always say Paul, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, you know, we were the mass. Right. We were in a mask that, that, that grins and lies and, 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 and hides our eyes. Right. So like this, 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 this double consciousness is what, you know, people talk about all the time in terms of black people. We have to be, you know, even though people say organizations say bring your whole self to work, we have to be one person at work. And then when we leave, we have to we, it's like we can be ourselves. That may be why my mother was would be so tired coming home from work because part of me, she would have to put on a show. She would have to put on a show and, and, and black people would, would have to, you know, literally assume the personality of someone else to get along, to survive in America. I a hundred percent agree. There is an exhaustion that comes from emotional labor that is different from physical labor. So my husband has a very physical job. And when he would come home and when I would come home and, you know, mostly my job is a desk job, we would be very different types of exhausted. And I would sometimes look more exhausted than he did. Because even though he had very physical labor all day, he had this peace in his work that I did not experience because I was dealing with that mask wearing and having to put on a completely different personality. And I think there's also this feeling of having to play chess. I always felt like my professional life was a chess game. I had to be three steps ahead of people who may be plotting against me. And, you know, it seems nefarious and it sounds like you're being paranoid and suspicious, but really a lot of those things would happen. And so there's this extra layer of work that you're doing. Not only do you have to be better than everybody else and work harder, but you also have to avoid these pitfalls that may be coming your way just because of being a black person in your field. So, yeah, I do think that part of why there's an extra level of exhaustion for black people when we come home is having to work in these white supremacy cultures. It makes me think about 
um, what just happened at the University of Kentucky, right? Uh, that student, that white student, I'm not actually not even sure how she identifies, um, but her name is Sophia Rosing. And, you know, she was arrested and charged after she bit, kicked, uh, and repeatedly called the black student who was working at the desk, um, you know, excuse my French, but a nigger bitch, right? And said that my people own owned your people and, and said all of these things that were completely outrageous. Imagine she has to show up for work the next day, right? Or if not the next day, the next couple of days, right? She has to walk around the campus. She was at work still. She was still on shift. She still had to work professionally while the police came and got her assailant. She had to wait and work through her shift just like a normal day and be professional the entire time. Her affect was, you know, you could tell it was devastating, but she remained so calm especially for such a young person. I, you know, it's a credit to her. I think uh, her name is Kyla. But yeah, I just, it's just so disgusting that we still have to endure things like that extreme, but also what sometimes I think are harder, which are the more insidious things that aren't that extreme. The good thing about what happened with, um, the woman who I won't even dignify her by saying her name is that she was filmed. Her career is essentially gone. She doesn't even have a career. She's a college student, but you know, her future, it's essentially a wrap at this point. But in the workplace, a lot of executives and people, you know, everyone's gone through harassment training and they know what not to say in most cases. And so it's the little digs, the microaggressions that aren't that blatant, that still are extremely painful, but harder to prove, that are very damaging to people. I did, because of my experience, I ended up writing my master's thesis on white supremacy in the workplace. And one of the things that I read doing my research is how there's such a physical impact of microaggression that it causes heart disease. There's a, a strong correlation between people who experience microaggression and heart disease, anxiety, asthma, uh, a, a litany of comorbidities that come from those illnesses and um, diseases. And, you know, we talk about why is it that Black people disproportionately fall victim to things like heart disease. Well, let's talk about the correlation between microaggression and heart disease. But, you know, we don't talk about those things, that there is a physical impact that happens from every day having somebody just say something that intimates to you that you're not professional enough. So it's not enough to warrant going to HR or it's not enough to get that person fired, but it's enough to make you question your worth and it's enough to make your blood pressure raise just a little bit higher that day. And that is, again, what I think we take for granted when it comes to being a Black person in the professional space and why we have to be so vigilant about saying that we are not gonna accept certain things 
and taking care of ourselves in community because it is really tough to survive being a Black professional. That It is so tough. And, and it makes me think about something I've been struggling with, right? Like, like, like protection, because racism is literally killing us, right? Like literally, you talked about the heart, you talked about heart conditions, you talked about all the things that come from it. You talked about the stress that it can have on your body. And, you know, Kyla Springs, that is the young lady, Kyla Spring, that's the name of the young lady um, at the University of Kentucky. And her assailant, you know, has since come out and, and, and posted these notes, these messages on Instagram and, you know, says, I understand an apology may not help, but I am not a racist. I was under the influence. I lost everything and now I have to fear for my life. God forgives. Please understand. And then she said, you know, I was under the influence. I'm sorry. I lost everything. But her latest post is what really takes me out. Because, you know, she says in the in the in the last post, she she was able to put out, if you guys knew I was under the influence, why record me? This was literally my senior year. There's such a lack, such a disregard for Kyla and and and, and what she had to experience and go through, right? Um, and it makes me think there's a march. There was a march that happened last night on the campus of the University of Kentucky. And, you know, they're, they're saying, you know, protect black women. And I wanted to ask you, because this is something that you could go through, right? This is something that I could go through. What does it mean to you to feel protected in the workforce? And I guess writ large, and what are your thoughts on, on, on who gets protection and who doesn't? Who's afforded that level of protection and who isn't? Ooh, that's deep. Uh, the only people who have protected me in the workplace are Black people, particularly Black women. The only people. And I, that brought me a lot of healing when it comes to my background, because again, I think there is a lot of ethnic racism between people who are, are you know, Kenyans or other diasporic Africans and Black Americans. And my parents, they did not look, well, less so my mom, but definitely my dad. I think he had a lot of misconceptions about Black Americans that he was fed by white Americans. And I felt very healed by this idea of being covered and protected by Black Americans because, you know, I think something that my parents really thought is that um, if you do everything you need to do and be godly and all that, that white people will come to your rescue when you need it. And I think time and time again, for me personally, that has been proven to be not the case. Now, I, I'm not saying that in a sweeping way that um, all white people are a certain way. I'm just speaking to my personal experience that I can't say that I've ever really felt true white allyship. I've had people talk about it, but I think, as they say, when the rubber meets the road, I haven't seen it. 
or experienced it for myself when it came to people sacrificing themselves or, you know, putting themselves on the line and or just especially in the case of being a white person, using their own privilege to advocate for me. I think in a lot of times it is a very low risk thing for a white person to do to stand up for a black person because they do carry a lot of privilege, but there's still a choice made not to do so. So I think protecting black women looks uncomfortable and it's harder than it sounds. There's a lot of narrative and a lot of rhetoric about protecting black women, but it's not easy to do. And what does it look like to do versus put it on a nine by 12 poster board and walk around at a march with it? I think that it looks a lot different in the workplace when you have to say, actually, this black woman deserves this raise more than me. Or when you have to say, I found it inappropriate that you spoke to this black woman that way. That's harder to do than saying, you know, putting on a T-shirt that says protect black women. And I think there's a lot of performative uh, activism happening right now. And I struggle because I guess performative activism is a step in the right direction. But I, I don't know. I'm not convinced. I think I would rather somebody just do what or, you know, practice what they preach. But I think it looks a lot different than many people think it does to actually protect black women. That's no, that is so real. I had a conversation with another, with another podcast guest. She, at the time I recorded her, she was a vice president at, at, at JP Morgan. She's the vice president and like chief diversity officer, I want to say. And she said that she does not believe that white allyship exists in the way people think that it does. And I'm paraphrasing because being a white ally is about giving up power. That's really what it's about. It's about, it's about giving up power. It's about saying what you just said. Actually, you know, I don't want, I, there's someone else who deserves this raise more than me. It's about the sharing of, of power. And we don't see that enough to think that um, it exists in the way it should. And, and that, that struck me because it was such a, a poignant statement, such a, you know, a clarion call to what white allyship could be. And every time I see things occur in the workforce, I think about who had the power to stop it, who had the power to speak up. Um, we've worked at organization together where some, you know, we can be honest, some blatantly racist things occur. And we had some individuals in the room who were black, who felt uncomfortable. And then we also had individuals in the room who did not identify as people of color. And they may have felt uncomfortable, but I'm not sure they spoke up the way they could have. And, and it just always makes me think about the power dynamic when racist things occur and how black people have to endure the traumatic experience of dealing with racism and then speak up and fight against it. And so 
it's a double, it's, it's like double work that we have to do. I think about Kyla, like Kyla had to go through it at the University of Kentucky, and now she has to speak about it and relive it again and again to draw attention to it. And she said something to me. She said, not to me personally, but she said something that resonated with me. She said, like, these things keep occurring. Right. She said, like, these racist incidences keep occurring. And she said, maybe it makes the most sense to not deal with the people who do it, but deal with the system and the organizations that allow it to keep occurring. And I think that we don't want to, or I I don't know about we, but as a nation, I don't think America is ready to fully grapple with how deep white supremacy culture is and how much of an impact it has had and continues to have in the workplace. When I was uh, doing my thesis, you have to submit a proposal for what you want to write about to uh, your uh, professor who's leading you through the thesis process. And I submitted it to him. He's a white man. He is actually the dean of the school. And he said, Ruth, I don't think this is a valid topic anymore. I, I don't think this is important or relevant. And I really had to prove to him how white supremacy is still very much a part of our culture at large and particularly our workplaces and particularly in nonprofit workplaces, which was my focus. And it was just so striking to me. And I ended up putting that exchange in my thesis because it was just so striking that I think there's this false idea of post-racial America and, you know, largely in the nonprofit sector, this idea that, you know, we're the, we're the good guys, you know, we're the ones who are doing the good work and, and we get it and we get it. And especially post-2020, I've seen too many nonprofit executives have this air of, um, Brene Brown says, I'm not here to get it right. Or sorry, sorry, sorry. She says, I'm not here to be right. I'm here to get it right. And that's what I love. That it's not about, oh, I'm the most woke person possible, but it's about I consistently every day have things that I need to unlearn and I need to remain teachable. And in the nonprofit sector, I think there's just a lot of executives who are focused on looking like they've reached the pinnacle of activism and allyship and they're unwilling to do the hard work that it takes to be introspective and see where they have themselves contributed to white supremacy culture. That's real. I want to, I want to ask you this, this question as you begin to bring this amazing episode to a close, what parting words would you leave with black people who come behind you? Right? What words of advice do you have for black people who are pursuing a position as a fundraiser, who, who may be the only one or one of the few black people at their job? What do you want to leave them? That's a tough question. I was having a conversation with a colleague who talk about the embodiment of protection and covering. And you know this person as well. She's amazing. 
And we were having a conversation about our responsibility to those who come behind us and struggling with telling them to make themselves smaller in order to survive in a white supremacist workplace. And I told her something that I think about a lot, that when you are having to instruct someone or share advice on how to survive, sometimes you say things that you wouldn't normally say in an ideal system or structure because it's about survival and not necessarily thriving. And it made me really sad to say that, that, you know, we have to tell people to make concessions, make themselves smaller, pretend they don't understand things as quickly, take things, take experience off their resumes, you know, um, take longer with projects than they need, you know, all these different things to survive in the workplace. And I hate that. I hate that we have to tell people that. And so I, I don't want to do that. I think I will share something that I read the other day. It was a quote from Zora Neale Hurston that said, if you are silent about your pain, they will kill you and say you liked it. It is. It just hit me like a ton of bricks, especially because it coincided with some things that I was going on in my professional life that, you know, if we just continue this grin and bear it and being quiet and just doing what we got to and, you know, all those things are understandable and I'm not disparaging them in any way. But if we continue to do that, they will continue this narrative that things are fine and the nonprofit field or just professional, you know, world in general. And yeah, we don't have a problem. We we're past those problems. We did a lot of seminars and webinars and workshops and everyone's fine. And that's really not the case. And so I would implore black people, people of color, but especially black people to not be silent about your pain and things that are happening in the workplace because they will continue to happen to others, but also just for your own health, you know, mental health, emotional health, even physical health, it's helpful to share about your pain. And sometimes you have to be strategic about who and when you share that with. Like you mentioned, therapy has been extremely helpful to me. I had a black therapist and I shared with her a lot of my pain before I was ready and able to share it in a way that changed my work environment. So I think just sharing it wherever is feasible at the time is really critical. I think prioritize healing, prioritize wellness. No one else is going to take care of us. We have to take care of each other. And find rest, both in ourselves, you know, just prioritizing rest is so important, especially for Black people. We've been made to think that rest somehow equates to laziness, but rest is critical and we deserve rest. And rest is an act of activism. And I think we have to prioritize rest as Black people and resting both, you know, like physical resting, taking naps during the day and stuff, but also 
emotional rest that comes in leaning on our community and people that love us and things that make us joyful. We have to prioritize those things because there's so much burnout that comes from being a Black professional. That was beautiful. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us on the Black Work Experience Podcast. I knew that this conversation would be magical. I knew that you would drop gems. Um, I was not I was not disappointed at all. So I want to tell you, thank you for joining us. Uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate your wisdom, your sage guidance. And I, I look forward to remaining connected with you and watching you do amazing things for the rest of your life. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Likewise, I hope we do a podcast swap. When I get my stuff together, you're going to be on my show and we'll have part two of this conversation. It was great. And I just really appreciate you giving voice to things that need to be discussed and have not had a platform before. You are doing work that will really impact people. So thank you for having this show and having me on your show. Absolutely. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Black Work Experience Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. If you would like to hear more, follow us on IG at BWEP. We're also on Twitter at BWE Podcast. Black Work Experience is hosted and produced by me, Robert Stevens. Our show is mixed by strategic communication specialist, Sarah Daggett. Find out more about her amazing work at DaggettConsultingLLC.com. That's Daggett, D-A-G-G-E-T-T, ConsultingLLC.com. Our theme music was composed by Cameron Wright. If you would like to contribute to Mail Time, please submit your mail times on our IG at BWE Pod. You can also DM us on Twitter at BWE Podcast or via email at blackworkexperiencepod at gmail.com.